So have you ever heard uh, this old wedding poem? Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Well, what it is, it's, it's an old traditional folklore of what a bride is supposed to, to wear on her wedding day or, or have on her in her pockets or something like that. She's supposed to, to have these things on her. It's an idea of a tradition she should follow. Now, the original occurrences of that little ditty had an extra line that went like this, and a silver sixpence in her shoe. Now, it's just me, but I'm kind of thinking the last thing a bride needs is an old coin in her shoe when she's walking down the aisle, unless she has some kind of fancy white penny loafers on, and then she can just put them in the top. But but an old, old coin doesn't sound like something you would need on your wedding day, at least not in your shoe. It seems the first time that this little poem showed up anywhere was in the St. James Magazine in England, uh, volume 28, the April to September edition in 1871. And it did not show up for a good reason. Uh, There was a young woman, I wasn't able to find her name, who was waiting on her fiancé James to come back from India. And so until he came back, they couldn't get married. So she was waiting on him to come back so that they could get married. Meanwhile, she was having to do all of the planning for the wedding. And undoubtedly, based on the title of her article, she was not happy with all of the wedding traditions that she was in the middle of because her title was Marriage Superstitions and the Miseries of the Bride-Elect. Well, there you go. Now, this is what she wrote in her article. Such a fuss about my clothes, such big discussions in which all my own ideas and opinions are silenced in the most ignominious manner. I had to look that up. It means undignified and shameful. She, she didn't like that she was being told she had to keep up with all of these traditions. Bless her heart. She probably just wanted to bedazzle her veil and nobody was going to let her do it. So there's some meanings behind all of those little things in that poem, including the one about wearing something old. One of the meanings was that you wear something old because it will protect your future children. Now, this is why folklore keeps losing its credibility. I mean, how in the world is wearing your mother's wedding dress going to keep your future kids from getting chicken pox? I mean, I just don't understand these things. There's another meaning that goes with this. It says that you wear something old to provide some continuity. Continuity meaning the unbroken, consistent operation of something. And so for the bride, it would be the consistent operation of her family. In other words, the the wedding is a sign that the family tree is going to continue. So you wear something old to mark the continuation of the family. So the bride is supposed to wear something old to mark continuity. What should the groom do to mark continuity? Well, maybe he could, on the wedding day, just carry around a, a quart of high mileage motor oil. I mean, after all, high mileage motor oil, it has conditioners that are designed to rejuvenate seals and, and stop leakages and, and maybe even prevent leakages in the future. So, so the idea is that something new, the oil, is put into something old, the car, and it's going to provide some continuity. That high mileage oil is going to provide that high mileage car the ability to have some unbroken, continuous operation. No, I don't really advise you future husbands to do that, but, you know, it's an idea. So, there's another kind of oil that can provide some continuity in your life. And the continuity is not a tradition, it's not a superstition, and it's not folklore. 
And it's a promise of something that's not just high mileage. In fact, it's the picture of a promise that guarantees the highest mileage your soul can ever have. So what kind of oil is that? Well, let's find out. Psalm 23, the middle part of verse 5. You have anointed my head with oil. David is writing about the beauty and the power of what it means to be a true child of the one true living God. And he uses the language that you would use to describe the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. And so David is defining himself as a, as a sheep in the flock of the kingdom of God, and the Lord God is his good shepherd. Now, a shepherd in ancient times would have oil, and he would use that oil to take care of his sheep. You know, sheep would get scratched, they'd get cut, and, and he'd use that oil, and, and he would put it on those places, those wounds, and he'd soothe and, and heal those areas with that oil. He would take care of his sheep. He might also use that oil to keep the sheep from being distracted, being frustrated. Now, why would a sheep be distracted or frustrated? So let me ask you a question. Have you eaten outside any this summer? And if you have, what were you having to do almost the whole time you were eating outside? Yeah, swatting the flies. Well, the same exact thing happened to sheep at their 4th of July picnic as well. See, the, the flies were always around. The insects were always around. Stephen Cole said this, Sheep cannot lie contentedly if insects are swarming around their nostrils or ears or open wounds. I'm pretty sure that's not just sheep. I mean, I don't think I can lie contentedly if any of that stuff's happening to me either. So the shepherd would, would use this oil mixture, and he would use that oil mixture as kind of an insect repellent, and he would keep the sheep from being frustrated and being antsy and being aggravated. It's also been noted that he would use the oil to protect them from different diseases that they could spread among the flock. And also he would use the oil if there was any, any headbutting going on. And I love that one, you know, because that oil, they just, they'd try to headbutt and they'd just slide off one another, you know, so, so nobody could really get mad and angry at one another after that. All of these things that the shepherd would do with this oil, he was doing these things because it was his way of caring for his sheep. He cared for them. He diligently cared for them when they could not care for themselves. Here's the thing. I think we all know this is true. There's a lot of insects in my life and your life, right? There's a lot of things that aggravate us. There's a lot of things that frustrate us. Those are things that in our life that create anxiety and, and discouragement. And sickness and disease, those show up in our lives every now and then too, right? And Sometimes at home, sometimes at school, sometimes at work, sadly, maybe even sometimes at the church, we, we might butt heads with somebody every now and then too, right? Yeah, all those things are, are part of, of normal life. And so the question is, where's God in all of those moments? Where's God in all of those aggravations and stresses and, and anxieties? Where's, where's God when there's conflict and problems and sickness and disease? Well, I can say this, God is not sitting in some golden recliner up in heaven watching our lives like it's some reality TV show where he's playing pranks on all of us. Kristen Weatherill is a wife, a Bible teacher. She wrote a book with one of her friends, Sarah Walton. The title of the book is Hope When It Hurts. And this is what she said. God feels far away like he's hiding himself. 
you feel destitute, dry, and desperate for a sense that he is still there, still listening, still caring. But you can't seem to eke out a prayer since even your prayers feel empty and they seem to return with an echo of defeat. Have you ever felt like you were hearing that echo in your life? Do you feel like you're hearing that echo now? Well, I want you to know you're not alone. Many, if not most Christians, hear that echo on a regular basis. But you might say, you know what? That doesn't really comfort you. You know, you're not trying to be mean, but the reality is you don't really care if someone else is struggling because you're struggling. You're hurting. You're in pain. You feel alone. You are desperately discouraged. Kristen goes on. Feeling far from God is a frightening experience. Knowing others have been there only shaves off a corner of our worry. And then she says this. We need God's word to speak to us about this reality, that we might know how to persevere and wait with hope when God feels far away. So it's not enough to say, oh, well, other people have been there. No, we need God. We need him to be our answer. And she directs our attention to, to Psalm 22. Listen to just the first couple of verses. This is the psalm right before what we're reading now. One through two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. That sound familiar? Have you ever experienced that? God, I'm, I'm losing my mind. I am so stressed out. I am so discouraged. Why aren't you answering my prayers? God, why aren't you pouring oil on my wounds? God, where are you? But David keeps praying. Verse 2. Yet you are holy. This is great. So in the middle of his prayer, God kind of quickens his heart. And so David kind of grabs his mind and, and reminds his soul, soul, the Lord is holy, holy, holy. The Lord is, is other, other, other. There is absolutely no one and nothing like him. And then he keeps praying. Verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. David's saying, God, God, I know you're faithful. You are the only perfect promise keeper. And God, it feels right now like you are failing me. But I know that's not possible because you can't fail. Why would David pray something like that? Well, at the very least, he's got about 3,000 years of evidence that he's building on. See, David knew that his life felt like it was falling apart, but he knew it was not possible for God to fall apart. See, he knew that God was holy, 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 and he knew that God had been revealing himself and proving himself over and over again for generations and generations. And my friend, in case you have forgotten or someone has never told you or you don't feel it, God is still holy, 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 and he is still proving himself over and over and over again. 
by two years. First Peter five, verse seven, Peter says this, cast all your anxiety on the Lord because he cares for you. I mean, we all know how to care for and care about people, right? I mean, I, I care about my wife. I, I care about my kids. But here's the truth. I can also be rude and mean and bitter and selfish and stubborn and down and discouraged and sometimes good for nothing. And guess what? So can you. See, we can't care all the time. God cares all the time. None of those things ever happen to him. God doesn't have to weigh the pros and cons of a situation. He doesn't have to figure out what's best for everybody involved. He always knows what's best. He always does what is best. He is always depositing in perfect time his love. He is always depositing in perfect time his mercy. It's who he is. It's what he does. A shepherd would use his oil to, to care for the sheep. But if there was a lot of disease or, or a lot of sickness or a lot of headbutting, then, then he might run out of his oil, right? It might be gone. That never happens to God. It, it never happens. He never stops caring. He never stops helping. He never runs out of his oil. He never stops anointing his sheep. It's impossible. Now, helping and, and healing, those weren't the only purposes of the shepherd's oil. It was also used for honor. In ancient times, it was viewed as something loving and respectful that if a guest come to you, came to your home, you would, you would pour oil over their head or over their hands or over their feet. Now, let me be honest. If you do that today, it's going to be a sign those people are not coming back to your house. All right? So, so just be wise. I mean, even if you're bald, it is hard to get olive oil out of your hair, okay? Uh, so, so just, you know, be wise about that one. So, so how would that transfer to us today? Well, we know what this would look like, right? You, you have a guest over at your home. You, you seat them at a, a very good place at the table. You, know, you bring them the plate with the most bacon, you know. You, you give them the biggest piece of red velvet cake. I mean, you go out of your way to serve them. You want them to know that you're glad they are there, and you want them to know that, that you appreciate their time with you. Now, watch your toes, because this question's going to hurt a little bit. So do you have that same attitude toward your family? Does your spouse and your kids, do the people closest to you, do they feel like they are honored and respected and loved by you and that you're really happy to have them around? You see, the, the sheep, they were not guests of the shepherd. And they weren't just employees for his career. The sheep were his family. He was committed to the sheep. The sheep were precious to him. Why? They were his sheep. They were, they were his sheep. I mean, really, be honest with yourselves. How, how many of us are quick to grab some oil and start rubbing it on the nostrils of our family when we're out at the picnic, right? I mean, I know we have some great moms in here, but I mean, it's a little gross, right? I mean, we're not really quick to go to great lengths all the time, every day, for every little need in the lives of the people that we love the most. We, we don't always do that. But the shepherd was sending a clear message to his sheep. I'm your guy. I care about you. I am here for you. I'm going to help you. You are mine. 
You're mine. And David writes this in the psalm so that we would understand that this is the eternal message of God, that he is there. That all was a message to those sheep from their shepherd that they were not alone. David knew he wasn't alone. It, it felt like he was alone. It, it felt like things were terrible. And they were in some ways. But he knew he wasn't alone. He had a good shepherd, a loving shepherd, a faithful shepherd. So let me ask you a question. For the good of your neighbors, for the good of your family, for the good of your soul, is the Lord really your shepherd? Are you one of his sheep? Is Psalm 23 just a a famous and, and familiar portion of the Bible that you maybe have heard at a funeral or saw on a, a refrigerator magnet or on a throw pillow at someone's house? Or is Psalm 23 full of the truth that you are leaning on as the perfect and ultimate comfort and confidence of your soul and your eternity? Are you leaning on Psalm 23 because God has spent at least the last 3,000 years strategically proving himself and his love and his grace and his mercy and his existence over and over again? Or maybe to put another way, when you lay your head down at night, are you confident that God loves you? Are you confident that God cares about you? Are you confident that God is helping you? Are you confident that God is for you? And, and how would you know? How, how would you know for sure that you're a sheep of the Good Shepherd? Well, maybe one way is to consider your bottle of cologne or perfume. You know, what in the world does that mean? Well, hopefully this will make sense. So there's a man named Simon. Simon lived during the same time that Jesus lived. And, and Simon asked Jesus to come and have dinner at his house one night. Now, this wasn't a big, fancy, formal state dinner thing. This was a, an informal dinner. Simon might have had a house with a, a big courtyard in the middle. And, and in the middle of that courtyard was a little table. The little table was about two feet off the ground. And there was a select number of people who had been invited to come and recline at that table for a meal. And what they would do is they literally go lay down by the table and they'd lean on one elbow and they'd use their other arm to, to reach for the food or, or to reach for their drink. There were some other guests that would stand on the outside of the courtyard. They weren't invited guests, but they weren't really uninvited guests either. Uh, it was not out of the ordinary in those days for people to hear that there was a, a meal at someone's house like Simon, and, and they would go. They'd be spectators. They would stand on the outside of the courtyard. They would listen in on the conversation, but that was all they were supposed to do is listen in. You know, they couldn't walk over and grab food off the table. You know, they had to bring their own snacks or you know, use the concession stand out on the road or whatever they needed to do, but they, they were just supposed to stand on the side and, and just be quiet and listen to what was going on. They could whisper a little bit, but, but not much. And on this day, at this meal at Simon's house, this woman showed up. And she wasn't part of the normal courtyard crowd. More than likely, she engaged in immorality for money. And she came that day, and you can just hear all the people gasping. Oh, what is she doing here? 
And she brought with her a a small jar of scented oil. And why was she there? What in the world was she doing there? And why did she bring what probably was her most valuable possession? It, It probably was worth all the money that she made in a year. Well, she came in and she stood on the outer part of the courtyard and she just listened to the conversation with Jesus and Simon and the others at the table. And, and after a while, she, she started moving away from outside and she started quietly moving toward the table, which is what you were not supposed to do. And she got to the table and she went to the place where Jesus was sitting and, and she knelt down at his feet and she poured her oil out on the feet of Jesus. The most precious, most valuable thing in her life, and she poured it out on the feet of Jesus. You have to imagine there were some people in the crowd going, What is she doing? (laughs) What a waste. Why is she putting it on his feet, too? He's not that important. He didn't have a position in the church, he doesn't even have a job, he doesn't own a house. Why is she wasting it like that? But for this woman, it wasn't a waste. It was a joy. It it was her honor to give her very best away to Jesus. But why would she do that for him? I mean, how did she even know who Jesus was? Well, I think we can safely say it, it makes no sense that he was a complete stranger. I mean, really, why would you take the most valuable thing in your possession and pour it out for someone you don't even know? So we don't know how she knew Jesus, but somehow, some way, she had already met Jesus. Maybe she heard him teaching one day, and she heard Jesus when he said this, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. She heard Jesus say that, and she thought, Ah, oh, it's me. I'm so tired. I'm so weary. I'm so burdened. I'm used and abused by people in this town for money and the people that don't use and abuse me, they despise me. I'm so weary. And she went home that day and and she thought deeply about those words from Jesus and, and maybe the Spirit of God whispered to her, hey, he was saying that to you too. And she repented and turned to Christ that day. Or maybe Jesus was walking outside and and he saw a bunch of guys standing around her, haggling over her, demanding her attention. And Jesus walked over to him and, and, and in a voice that sounded like a caring shepherd said to the woman, you know what, you don't have to live like this. God loves you. Repent and follow me. We don't know how she met Jesus but we know somehow she had to meet Jesus and we know that she responded to Jesus because by the time that she hears that Simon is having Jesus at his house, she goes and gets the most valuable thing that she owns and she runs to where Jesus is. But something happened as she started pouring out her oil on the feet of Jesus. She became overcome. She became overwhelmed. It it hit her again who this was that she was bowing before. In her mind and in her heart, she was saying, this is the man who rescued my soul. This is the one who saved me. This is my redeemer. And she became so overwhelmed, she began to weep 
on his feet. Just, just crying hard, tears falling all over the feet of Jesus. And so she took her hair down and she began to wipe the feet of Jesus. Now, yes, that just sounds weird and gross to us today. But Jesus did not rebuke her. In fact, just a few moments later, Jesus looked at her again with the care of a shepherd. And he said, you know what? Your sins have been forgiven. Now, Jesus is not saying this to her, saying that she's saved because she poured out expensive oil on his feet. He's, he's not saying that, that she just miraculously is saved because she's crying on his feet. Remember, this woman would have absolutely no reason to do any of this unless she had not already in some way responded to the call of Jesus. Again, it makes no sense that she would do something this extravagant for a complete stranger that she didn't know. That's not very rational. So Jesus is not declaring that she is saved because of her actions. He seems to be affirming that she is already saved because of her actions. And then he leans into her and with the warmth and love and care of a shepherd. He says, it's okay. All of this, it's real. Your sins really have been forgiven. Can you imagine? I mean, she's scum of the earth in her community. She's nothing but a dirty sinner. She engages immorality for money. But then she met Jesus, and all of her sin was rolled away. Why? Because Jesus rescued and saved and redeemed her. Her sins were forgiven. And I think Jesus just wanted her to hear it again. Your sins have been forgiven. On another day, Jesus said this in his teaching, John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, that woman, she had heard the voice of the good shepherd. She had experienced what it meant to have divine heavenly oil poured on her soul. See, when she laid her head down at night, she was confident that God loved her. She was confident that God cared for her. She was confident that God helped her. And she was confident that God was for her. The Lord was her shepherd. About 1,600 years ago, John Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, and he was threatened with being banished for his Christian faith. This is how the conversation went. I'm going to use the 1,600 years ago language, too, because it's fun. Thou canst not banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will slay thee, said the emperor. Nay, thou canst not, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then I will take away thy treasures. Nay, but thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive thee away from man and thou shalt have no friend left. Nay, thou canst not. 
For I have a friend in heaven from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee, for there is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. That is the voice of a sheep that knows the shepherd. Those of the words of one who had felt the divine oil upon his soul. That's the heart of one that knows the Lord is and was and will always be his shepherd. The Lord was his shepherd and the Lord is his shepherd forever. When we read these things in the scripture, they are not just fancy poetic language. They are pictures of the promises of a God who is always for us, who will never leave us, never forsake us, never fail us. And that's the way he is forever. 